from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing this is hell and what we seem to have lost is the value of finding common cause among people who do not necessarily look act or identify the same as we do whoever it is that we identify as within the racial and ethnic categorizations we have created here in the United States That identity and its identity politics have been rather contentious over the last few decades. While some have focused on the inequalities suffered by those who see themselves within the same racial or ethnic groups, many have argued that what is missed is the common inequalities that are faced across race and ethnic boundaries, a discrimination against, above all, those who are not as well off as the people who usually dominate voter turnouts during every election cycle, that is, the rich. In fact, identity politics can lead to, as our guest today argues, increased divisiveness, antagonisms, and yes, even violence. Although that is completely understandable given the United States history of institutionalized and structural racial divisions, as well as gender divisions that have dominated the U.S. of A. since its founding and the so-called Founding Fathers. In a few minutes, we will speak with Ariana Chabelle D'Apollonia, who is author of Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society. Dr. D'Apollonia is a professor in the School of Public Affairs and Administration at Rutgers University in Newark. She is also a senior researcher affiliated with the Center for European Studies and Comparative Politics. Her research focuses on the politics of immigration and racism, management of diversity, urban minority policies, anti-discrimination, security issues, xenophobia, extreme right-wing movements, immigrant integration, and European policies. She has taught at universities both in France and in the United States. She is the author or editor of many books, including Frontiers of Fear. Immigration and Insecurity in the United States. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, how's your week going so far? Feels like a lot, Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Stop Cop City and all. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going down in Atlanta again, and... uh, 
Jess Litka, former producer on our show, has said that he can connect us with one of the people who is actually one of the forest defenders in Atlanta. That's one of the many guests that I'm trying to get on this show for tomorrow, but we have, don't have anybody confirmed yet at this point in time. Well, let's hope they didn't get arrested <laughs> yeah, exactly. in the latest roundup. Yep. So, um, yeah. Not- uh, besides that, I, this there's a full moon, and this morning I just like have been hearing so much good music. It's uh, it's kind of nice. No, oh, that's cool. Full yeah. moon, good music. I don't know. It's it's not like it happens every time. I'm just saying, like there's a there's a correlation today. It's a nice Only. symmetry. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Monday's New York Times had a headline that really caught my eye. The story was headlined, "With caution, South Korea arms globe." The online version of the report had a much more revealing and editorially accurate headline, which was, They're exporting billions in arms, just not to Ukraine. So the story states, a year after Russia invaded Ukraine, the war has spurred a global effort to produce more missiles, tanks, artillery shells, and other munitions, and few countries have moved as quickly as South Korea to increase output. So it would seem like South Korea is, according to that paragraph, well, they're implying that they are either arming Russia or Ukraine. The story continues. Last year, South Korea's arms exports rose 140% to a record $17.3 billion, including deals worth $12.4 billion to sell tanks, howitzers, fighter jets, and multiple rocket launchers to Poland, one of Ukraine's closest allies. But as South Korea expands weapons sales globally, it has refused to send lethal assistance to Ukraine itself. Instead, it has focused on filling the world's rearmament gap while resisting any direct role in arming Ukraine, imposing strict export control rules on all its sales. South Korea's wariness stems in part from its reluctance to openly antagonize Moscow, from which it hopes for cooperation in imposing new sanctions against an increasingly belligerent North Korea. Countries throughout Latin America, Israel, and others have also declined to send weapons directly to Ukraine. So, despite the print headline reporting some concern the time has of South Korea arming the globe, their real apprehension appears to be that South Korea is not arming Ukraine. They're they're not upset about South Korea arming the globe. They're upset about who South Korea is not arming. But what annoyed me most were the numbers used in those early paragraphs. Again, South Korea's arms exports rose 140% to a record $17.3 billion. Meanwhile, a quick online search finds the story from Reuters, which reported in late January of this year, U.S. arms exports are up 49% in fiscal 2022. The first paragraph of that article states, sales of U.S. military equipment to foreign governments rose to $205.6 billion in the last fiscal year, the U.S. State Department said. Those numbers are never reported in the Times story about South Korea arming the globe. To sum up, the U.S. arms the globe at a rate 12 times higher than South Korea, and yet the New York Times is upset that South Korea is not arming Ukraine. The Times is essentially cheerleading South Korea to antagonize nuclear power Russia while ignoring the nuclear power on South Korea's doorstep to the north, which is North Korea. And it would be awful provocative to China, 
which yesterday the foreign minister told the United States that they are being far too provocative and they need to change their stance or else there will be a war. All of this led me to consider a new segment on our show called The End Times, as in the seeming desire of the New York Times editorial board to encourage more weapons proliferation in war zones where countries with nuclear weapons are currently engaged. More important than my annoyance at the New York Times seemingly consistent pro-war editorializing within their news reporting, Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? The question from hell is... What was a difficult work experience, and how did you overcome it? My apologies for not printing out the reads this morning. i got to get used to that more so. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face mask, the face covering, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can leave your uh, answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us or you can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Now, Lindsay, what is Jeff talking about this week? And I apologize for not printing it out for you. It's okay. I went and found it. And look at you, smarty pants. Jeff stubs his toe on a cultural stumbling block. Oh, I hate stumbling stuff. That's the most painful thing in the world, especially the pinky toe. Oh, my God. I've broken my pinky toe at least five times in my life, and you can't do anything about it. And I talked to a doctor one time. He said, just tape it to the other toe. It'll, <laughs> it'll straighten out. And every time it does. Yeah. So as, yeah that's a good tip. It Free is a tip. good tip. Free health care right there. Pro tip right there. As I mentioned earlier this week, we are currently uh, booking the rest of this month's shows. After considering dozens of authors and their books to be featured here, on This Is Hell and considering your wonderful suggestions as well, we shared a list of possible guests with our Patreon patrons. Here's how some more of our Patreon patrons are responding so far. Erica Eisen, who has been on the show uh, back in 2021 to talk about her Boston Review article, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 Years On, Failures in Prosecuting the Businessmen Who Profited from the Nazi War Machine, showed just how far post-war Europe and America were willing to go in the Cold War quest to protect capitalism. Again, you can find that uh, interview at our website right now by just searching on the last name Eisen, E-I-S-E-N. Erica gives her vote for choke point capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back by Rebecca Giblin and Corey Doctorow, which Erica says we was mentioned recently on our Discord, which is something I have yet to check out, but we'll be doing so this weekend as we hope to be more engaged at Discord, and we may be making a big announcement about a new platform, which we'll be joining as well. Erica, I will email again uh, both the authors of the book, but don't get your hopes up because the last time I emailed them about that book, all I got was crickets. Erica also nominates a book by past guest Malcolm Harris titled Palo, Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism in the World. Erica, you will be happy to hear we are already in contact with Malcolm. Erica also says, please, please have a guest on to talk about the brewing genocide of trans people in the United States. And we'd be glad to do so. That is, if anyone has a guest suggestion on what Erica calls 
transgenocide. Craig J. posts, the Kakata Williams book sounds really interesting. That would be Kakata's new book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Violence in the War Against Reconstruction. Cam writes that he would like us to interview a guest suggested by producer Lindsey Gorey, and that is Trisha Hersey. The book is entitled Rest is Resistance, a Manifesto, which would be a great follow-up to our recent conversation with Sheila Liming on her book, Hanging Out, the Radical Act of Killing Time. We have a few more that I'll be reading uh, after our conversation with Ariana in just a moment. Coming up, identity politics and their connection to violence in the United States. We will have this week in Rotten History. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Maybe. Possibly. Not too sure. We'll see. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell Identity politics can empower those who have been discriminated against both institutionally and structurally. However, it is also exclusive, focusing only on that group's suffering. But what if there was a more inclusive identity politics that brought all those together who face such discrimination? Is that even possible? Here to help us have a better understanding on the subject, Ariane Chabelle d'Apollonia is author of Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ariane. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. All I have written down are about 57 questions, so let's get to this as quickly as we can. <laughs> oh, that's a small number. Yeah, sure. Uh, you write the historic and current use of violence by various ethno-racial groups is not simply a result of socioeconomic competition, nor a cognitive statement about ethno-racial difference, but is part of an instrumental identity strategy, one purposely designed to secure symbolic and material resources. This approach offers a more nuanced appreciation of intergroup relations than the common assumptions included in studies that casually link ethnicity and a disposition for violence. So how do we understand the use of violence and why it's used differently when we see violence as not only about socioeconomic competition, but as a strategy to address that competition? Yeah, it's, as you say, it's very complicated. And um, I, I started to think about this book a few years ago after the riots in Ferguson, um, after the killing of Michael Brown. And I had the feeling at that time that history was repeating itself. Um, but on the other hand, I say, well, there are many things that are different. Uh, we made some progress in America um, there is some socioeconomic improvement and so on. So I try to understand um, something puzzling. I try to understand the resilience of violence, especially ethno-racial violence, over time, despite significant institutional societal changes and, in America, increasing diversity. And as you mentioned, I, I go to the traditional explanation. So the first socioeconomic competition for having access to scare resources and so on. And I realized that, yeah, it was, it was a good explanation, but it didn't explain the variety of the forms of violence in terms of uh, motivation, in terms of actors, and in terms of victims. And so I, I went back to the history of America 
And I realized that there was something, maybe a more interesting explanation. Instead of assuming that ethno-racial identities are the source of violence, they are to some extent, but instead of focusing on that, it will also be interesting to realize that identity is not only a cause of violence, but also the result of violence. So then I started to study the relationship between the use of violence and the identification process. And I was amazed. I, I discussed that a lot with my uh, students. And I realized they were completely ignorant of the emergence, the, the emergent the process explaining the emergence of different ethno-racial identity in the US. Um, in, in America, we tend to focus on the white and black dichotomy, the black divide for obvious reason. Um, but when you study the history of American society, you realize that all groups at some point were and are still involved in the use of violence, discursive or physical, in order to secure their identity. And this identification process, as I argue, is part of an instrumental strategy to secure access to symbolic and material resources. So I had some interesting discussion with colleagues who say, but how can you suggest that victims can be perpetrators of violence? Uh, or that uh, all uh, perpetrators uh, should claim some victimhood. I know it's it's hard to understand, but if I have time, if you allow me to give you a few historical examples. Um, when the first settlers arrive, um, they use violence against uh, Indian tribes because of this, this was racially motivated. But as a result, there was the emergence of the group, the identity group, Native Americans. Um, the violence against African Americans was also part of the, the emergence of blackness. Um, white became white by using violence against other whites. The Anglo-Saxon uh, didn't think that European immigrants were white. Um, so they use violence. Italian were persecuted by Anglo-Saxon in late 19th century. The strategy of the Italian was to use violence against African-American and other minorities in order to secure their whiteness. So while they were persecuted on the East Coast by the Anglo-Saxon, they also persecuted Chinese in California. So that's why I, my, the first part of my argument is to say the use of violence is part of an identity strategy. So are all these categorizations, are they imposed upon us by someone else or a system? Why do we uh, embrace these categorizations? Why do we come up with these categorizations? Most of the time, especially for minority, they don't have the choice. Uh, the only choice they have is how they're going to react. And in terms of identity politics, uh, it fueled the reactive identification process. I'm persecuted because I'm black, so I'm going to react by the, the reaffirmation of blackness as a positive categorization. 
And you have the same process when it comes to other minorities. So I'm not suggesting in my book that the use of violence as a response to violence or the use of violence only for the sake of securing domination, economic privilege, and so on, are morally equivalent. But the problem is that they interact. So that's why I say um, some victims can be perpetrators and some perpetrators can be victim, maybe not objectively. And if we, if we discuss the notion of white privilege, the white privilege exists. We can't deny that. But it doesn't mean that all white are objectively privileged or more importantly, feel that they are privileged. And this is, we may disagree. We may think that, oh, it's obscene, it's unethical, but these people exist. And you have the category, the so-called category of poor white, but they don't, they're, they're very um, aggressive when you mention to them, why do you complain? You're white, so you benefit from the white privilege. They don't understand that. They disagree with that. So what I also discuss in my book is the difference between an objective situation and the perception, the subjective feelings of the people involved in these spillover effects of identity politics. I, I also want to, um, to make it clear, I have nothing against identity politics. Uh, identity politics can provide very positive outcomes uh, when it congregates different groups um, around a common cause, what you mentioned in your introduction. Uh, it was the, the, the example of the civil rights movement where African-American, but also white liberal and other minority supported the cause of justice, social justice, racial justice, uh, civil rights, and so on. So identity politics can be positive. My concern is that since the 90s, identity politics turned into a contentious identity politics. Identity politics was not used to group different group, subgroups, minorities together, but to play um, a zero-sum game. What is good for me uh, may be bad for you, but I don't care because I have, have my, my claim, my grievances are more legitimate than yours. So we started, and it's this is the paradox of the civil rights movement. To some extent, it was so successful in terms of politics of recognition identification and so on, that many other groups, including non-ethno-racial groups, were inspired by this process, um, such as identity politics based on gender, uh, sexual orientation, religion, and so on. The problem is that there was a spillover effect. And now the result is a complete fragmentation not only of ethno-racial groups, but also of all different groups. Um, if you, if the white category, okay, the white category, we have to pay attention. I understand it's easy to simplify the complicated word we're living on. 
But the black category is divided by race, by class, um, because you have white Hispanic. Do they feel Caucasian? No, they don't feel Caucasian. They, what they have in common with non-Hispanic white, it's only they're not black. But they are an increasing diversification. Plus, I mentioned class, race, but also um, political affiliation. Um, we need to bear in mind, for example, that more minorities voted for Trump in 2020 than in 2016 um, among the so-called black community, black group. Uh, their tension between African-Americans and African immigrants, what do they have in common? Well, they're black, meaning they're not white. Apart from that, in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds, nationality, uh, everything, okay? We're going the feminist organization. We're going to fight uh, for uh, women's rights and so on. It lasted two weeks because it imploded with the black and white woman, um, the Republican and the Democrats and so on. So we are more and more fragmented. Um, and this fuel polarization, fragmentation, and some people try to benefit from the situation, but not for the common good, not for what should be our priority in the United States. And priority should not be cultural war um, to have debate about things that are not going to improve the life of millions of people in this country. You write that when it comes to the purpose of violence, there are three alternatives. Uh, first, violence can be part, as you were saying, of a deliberate policy of domination and a zero-sum strategy uh, designed to secure material and symbolic resources to the detriment of other groups. Second, it can be motivated by a reactive defense against predation or prejudice prompted more by necessity than choice. Finally, the use of both discursive and physical violence can be part of an identity strategy employed by any ethno-racial group in America. So how much do people in the United States identify themselves through who the other is that they deem as deserving victims of both forms of violence, whether that's motivated by a perceived struggle over resources or guided by hate? How much do we identify ourselves by through the other and who deserves to be uh, to be the victims of acts of violence? Well, the problem is that um I assume you know that because of the title of your show that hell is paved with good intention. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So my point in the book is to make the, the distinction between different forms of violence in terms of motivation. As you say, there is violence for securing domination, uh, racially motivated. We have hate speech, hate crime, um, anti-migrant phobia, white supremacist propaganda. That's the easy part to study, okay? Not to understand, uh, but to study. It's clear, okay, we know what these people think, we know who they hate and what they want to do. It's clear. But then you realize that it's more complicated. Um, you can have among Hispanic, the so-called uh, group Hispanic, or Latino, means 
then this means nothing, by the way, for Latino or Hispanic. When you ask them, how do you define yourself? They tend to define themselves by their country of origin. I'm Mexican, I'm Cuban. Uh, and by the way, they don't they don't get on well very often, okay? Um, so this identification process means nothing for them, but they use this identification like the Latino political group, Latino lobby, La Razza, all this organization, because it, it helps for them to secure an electorate and, thanks God, to secure some rights or to have the tools to react against um, racism, prejudice, and so on. My concern is that when they feel obliged in order to secure their position, to attack all the groups, um, when there is the anti-Black sentiment among um, some segments of the Hispanic population, when there is anti-Black sentiment against the Asian uh, communities, broadly defined. So this is where, you know, you, you say, hey, but you're, you're minorities, you're suffering. Um, why don't you try to find a common cause? And then one easy solution would say, well, all the white are racist. I understand the temptation to say that, but we need to make a distinction between the white privilege as a legacy of slavery and other dark episodes of American history, and to qualify that all white are racist just because they're white. First, define whiteness. There is difference between whites. And secondly, it's good to know that the whites are becoming more and more liberal as a result of the Trump administration. We tend to focus on the Trumpist populism, uh, the increase of hate speech, hate crime, and so on, for good reason. And I put my name on the list of people who are working on that, studying and trying to fight this. But we should also pay attention to the fact that for example, 94% of Americans are in favor of interracial marriage today. That vast majority of white liberal um, support more funding, federal funding for minorities. Uh, among Democrats, the, the white are even more liberal than the non-white. So we, it's complicated. I'm not trying to justify any use of violence. Um, I'm not ranking misery. I just want to identify this spillover effect of fragmentation, victimhood, competition, and so on. Because at the end of the day, it will be detrimental for everybody. And it fuels polarization. It fuels the rascalization today of almost everything in America, politics, culture, education. When are we going to stop? You write that pointedly an historical overview of race relations demonstrates that anti-Black prejudice has understandably constituted the major narrative because of the structural and institutional abhorrence 
of slavery and its aftermath. But it is only one, if a singular and exceptional, form of racial prejudice in America. Other minorities were discriminated against and targeted for violence. These minorities, as you were saying, include Asian and Mexican immigrants in the late 19th century, as well as immigrants from Europe who were not perceived as white and therefore suffered from discrimination. This today includes, for example, groups like Muslims who face racial prejudice on the basis of their race, ethnicity, national origin and religion. So does anti-black prejudice, prejudice influenced by slavery and its aftermath, does that guide all of our other prejudices? Is the legacy of slavery, the Civil War, the end of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and so on, all of the different forms of prejudice against all non-white people, the legacy of the long history of anti-black prejudice by white people? Does slavery of those of African descent affect the prejudices against all non-white people in the United States, no matter their race, due to the legacy of slavery? Yes, but in two ways. Yes, directly, because the institutional framework of American society, the legacy of history, the legacy of this identification process, everything relate to the to slavery and uh, the the killings, the lynchings of of African Americans um, from the late nineteenth century to the civil rights movement. African American uh, represented ninety percent of racial killings in America. Ninety percent. So indirectly, because. The evolution of American society, um, the 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 tolerance um, towards different form of diversity and so on, help other groups to integrate this structure. But the structure was defined by this legacy, historical legacy. So. Um, scholars on migration studies, for example, when they want to evaluate the successful or unsuccessful assimilation of immigrants, uh, European immigrants and now um, Latino, Latinx, whatever, uh, Asian immigrants, they tend to use a benchmark system, you know, based on this. How is it possible for Mexican to uh, do better than African-American? So indirectly, it's still an instrument of measurement for successful or unsuccessful assimilation. But as I try to explain in the book, we should not dismiss, even if it's not as dominant, we should not dismiss the violence um, against other minorities. And when I mentioned that to my students, they were very surprised. They didn't know that Mexican, there was lynching of Mexican in California, that there were mass massacre of Chinese in California. They didn't know that. Um, so there, other minorities were, and are still victim of violence, including police brutality. And we should also not dismiss the fact that minority can use violence against other minorities. Think about the LA riots of 1992. It started the traditional American style, police brutality involving black and white. But what happened? Hispanic, uh, Korean were involved, and actually there were more Hispanic and Korean involved in the riots than black and white. 
So we should also pay attention to that. You write how your approach clearly runs against the narrative assumption that minorities should be regarded as passive objects of politics when it comes to the use of violence. Those few studies that acknowledge its use by minorities often ascribe it to only a primal reactive response to adversity as angry, unplanned behavior motivated by frustration fueled by the resilience of racial prejudice and institutional discrimination and violence. Viewed from this perspective, forms of reactive violence are purposeless, as suggested by many criminal stereotypes of African-Americans and other minorities. But to tell the story of the historical and contemporary relationship between violence and ethno-racism requires us to take into account the key ingredients of contentious politics by which they all politically participate in the arena of representation and entitlement. Is a claim that this violence is purposeless, a reinforcement of white prejudice or even supremacy, because during such violence, commentators often speak to the pointlessness of violence. So is such an analysis, one that may even be simply opposed to violence in any form, a reinforcement of racism, whether the person who is making such an argument of purposelessness recognizes it or not? Well, as I, as I mentioned before, I want to, to be very clear. Um, to use violence uh, as a response to violence or to use violence only to reaffirm domination, this is not morally equivalent. However, we don't live in an ethical world. Last time I checked, it was not the case. Um, so if we want to explain what's going on, uh, we need to understand that some victims of violence can also be perpetrator of violence. And I have some argument with some colleagues working in racial studies who say, how can you say that and so on? But um, it's, I think what is more uh, insulting is to, um, to assume that when a minority use violence, it's only for the fun of it, uh, just to burn cars, to destroy stores, um, just because they're delinquents, criminals, um, and so on. This is, I think, really insulting. But to consider that when you use violence, especially if you're a minority, you do that in order to achieve something. I don't think that um, during the civil rights movement, when there was violence against uh, the protester, but also on, on the side of the protester to once again to protect themselves physically and so on, there was they, they, there was an agenda. How can we assume that minority use violence with no purpose only because they're minority? I think this is insulting, not my position. So it, that just made me think of uh, something that has been debated, as you likely know, here within the United States, which is. The, even the the use of the word looting, how does looting fit into the framework that you were just talking about, where you see the media covering it as people are taking advantage of purposeless violence in order to steal things that they would not be able to afford otherwise? How do you feel about that framing of looting within the media? Well, I, I don't like it. 
I don't like it. And also because of my uh, background as an historian, uh, I read, you know, the Kerner report and all the reports after the, the urban riots in the 60s. And um, some sociologists explain the riots by saying, well, you know, minorities, they have a culture of violence. Uh, this is part of their, of their identity, if not part of their DNA. We didn't use DNA at the time, but it was the idea. Um, so I, I resent that. I much prefer to assume that people using violence have a purpose. We Maybe are... I uh, of course, there is all, always some uh, delinquents just wanted to take advantage. They were, you know, looting in Ferguson and the other city. It was not the majority of the protesters. So, yes, it's not perfect. It's not, it's complicated. Um, but to assume that people use violence just because they have a cultural violence, that's the only way they react uh, they can't think beyond the use of violence, looting, and so on. I think we missed the point. Ariana Chabelle D'Apollonia is our guest. She is author of Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society, which is an incredibly enlightening work. To what degree, Ariane, is identity politics the result of grievances that have gone unaddressed, grievances that are resilient, grievances that remain for very long periods of time with no change? Is identity politics the result of our current form of democracy's inability to ensure our constitutional right of the people to petition the government for a redress of grievances? Is identity politics an outcome of the unfulfilled promises of equal rights? Well, I don't want to blame identity politics for everything. As I said, identity politics, when it's used properly for relevant purpose, um, ethical objectives, um, can provide very positive outcomes. Um, it was the way for minorities, for different groups to um, gain recognition, respect, rights, and therefore access to resource. Um, my concern is that if identity politics is not the source of all our problems today, I know for sure that it's not the solution. It's not the solution to our problems because it fuel grievances. Some grievances are legitimate. All the grievances are instrumental. And this is a short-term strategy. Um, and... For example, yesterday, I read an interview of Paul Ryan, of all people in the New York Times, uh, Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan said um, in this interview that um, in among Republicans, those who are successful today are those who are playing identity politics. And he said it's, um, it's divisive. Um, you can divide an electorate to secure an election. But in in it means that the other ninety percent will hate you, and uh, he said it's it's becoming harder for our politics to be unified. I was surprised. I mean, Paul Ryan, I was not expecting him, but 
I have to agree with one point at least when when he said um, identity politics is not is not uh, the way to address key issues in America today, including socioeconomic inequalities. We can't have social justice without racial justice, but we can't have racial justice without social justice. So we have we have we are facing many challenges, important challenges. If our way is to say, I'm going to protect my tiny, narrow, in-group, um, it's, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. So is identity politics, is it still successful when it comes to politics writ large when people are running a political campaign? Or do you see that, as you were just saying, it's not sustainable. Do you see the power of identity politics within politics writ large? Do you see that as waning at this point in time, that identity politics is losing its uh, hold on political discourse? Yes, to some extent. Um, I may be uh, maybe naive or too op optimistic. It's premature to to say yes. I'm sure 100. percent We it's it's the decline of a, of contentious identity politics, not identity politics in itself. Um, but there are there are some good signs that I, I tried to analyze in in the conclusion of the book. Um, identity politics uh, works when it helps to identify common misery. And when common misery produce solidarity among different groups, um, that you know, different groups able to recognize common challenges, common issues, uh, sharing common values, and so on. In terms of politics, uh, I'm not sure, but um, we 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 are witnesses the emergence of new forms of coalition um, mobilization of different groups, associations, and so on. And um, they try to address some common issues, climate change, sustainability, the fight against poverty, and so on, independently from the ethno-racial identification, independently from racialization, and so on. They try really to focus on what they have in common. What can also uh, make a difference uh, in, in the long term is the, the demographic uh, transformation of, of the United States. We are facing a demographic revolution by uh, 2050. Uh, there will be no majority group, so the white will be less than 50%. We will become a majority minority society. And there is also an increasing number of people who declare themselves as multiracial. And among these categories, the first generation and now the second generation of multiracial Americans, uh, among this category, there are an increasing number of people who say, you know what, I'm fed up with this contentious identity politics based on grievances and so on and so on. And um, they want to focus on something different. They want to focus on socioeconomic issues, um, how to improve American society, how to adjust to climate change and other uh, emergency we, 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 we need to address. 
So there are some positive signs. I'm trying to be slightly optimistic in the conclusion of the book. So can multiracial categorization, can the category of being multiracial, can that undermine all of the previous categories that we have embraced over the centuries here in the United States? Can multiracialism lead to an end of not just, you know, can it lead to an end of contentious identity politics? Yes, because we know, uh, based on all the forms of diversity, that the diversification of diversity increased tolerance. Um, so Americans are more and more tolerant. Um, they accept different kind of diversity more and more. So Americans are becoming more and more liberal in terms of values, not in terms of politics, but in terms of values when it comes to tolerance, um, the acceptance of, of different groups, identification process, and so on. Of course, um, we're not going to change the institutional framework, the main paradigm, the main structure of society in one generation. Um, multiracial Americans are still trapped to some extent by the existing category. At some point, they still have to define themselves. Uh, yeah, okay, you are multiracial. You have the option on when you fill out the form for a census to declare yourself multiracial. But come on, in, in the real life, are you white? Are you black? Are you brown? So they still have to position themselves according to these existing boundaries. But I think they try also to erode this, the, the rigidity of this categorization. And this may help to maybe not to suppress, but to limit the effect of this uh, classification. You write that a series of challenges that America now faces as a result of the emergence of emergence of what is widely characterized as a post-racial society, albeit one where racism and violence abounds. Progress in racial equality has been slow and remains limited. It was not until 1967 that a Supreme Court decision nullified state laws banning intermarriage. Yet there is no legislation powerful enough to change unyielding mentalities. Traditional expressions of racial bias have gone underground in response to the gains of the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the growing role of government in advancing black rights. Does going underground lead to more extremist beliefs when it comes to racial bias? And if so, why? Because many believe forcing racial bias underground and out of the light of day is effective in fighting racism. Yeah, and that's the that's the negative aspect of that. So as I say, trying to be optimistic in the conclusion by, um, you know, emphasizing the the potential impact of multiracial people and so on. But you're right. There is uh, there is the always the pessimistic scenario, and the pessimistic scenario is that um, among different groups, uh, the fact of becoming a minority made some people more aggressive towards other group. Um, and we, 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 there is this notion in, in the US of the white backlash, and this is very powerful. We have to pay attention to that. The problem is that most people 
analyze the situation today as the situation you know in the 60s well the white backlash uh, during the reconstruction period during or after the civil rights movement or what we call today the white backlash today they they have nothing in common this is a different different things um once again history is not repeating itself we have to pay attention to to the differences um but when it comes to the to the result of that, um, you still have some people who don't want to accept diversity, any kind of diversity. And um, if we have more hate crime, hate speech in America today than you know, than during the Obama period, it started to increase. We need to think about that, and that's why I mentioned the ambivalence of post-racial America. For some people, post-racial America was only to focus on the good side, uh, the, the positive evolution, socioeconomic improvement for minorities and so on. Uh, but the problem is that the post-racial um, society doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, and to some extent, the idea that we may achieve a post-racial society increase resentment, racial resentment among some groups. So that's why the Obama administration was maybe the less racist, the less racial, and also the most racial administration. You write that to diagnose what it would take to make identity-based politics more inclusive and less violence, I contend that it is time to move from antagonism to agonism by yes. promoting democratic contestation based on a positive ethos of engagement and engaging in a more inclusive politics of difference, which sounds absolutely fantastic, but, you know, I, something I would hope for, but that's kind of where I draw the line that I hope for it, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Agonism is the potentially positive aspects of certain forms of conflict. It accepts a permanent place for such conflict in the political sphere, but seeks to show how individuals might accept and channel this conflict positively. How can politics of difference be positive within the political sphere, even inclusive when they appear to be so exclusive because right now all I see is they're trying to be a politics of difference. I am not voting for Obama. I am not voting for Trump. It just to seem it just seems to be anti-Trump, anti-Obama, just the politics of difference. That's all it seems that we have right now. So how can politics of difference be positive within the political sphere? So I agree with you. Um when I suggest to move from antagonism to agonism um, it's hard to, to achieve in, in one day. And I, I don't have the solution. I have the solvability. If not, I will have a more, you know, earn more money um, than royalties on my book. <laughs> if I patent the, the solution to all the problems in America. Um, but as I mentioned, I have nothing against the politics of difference which is a core element of identity politics. As I say, it can help to achieve positive outcomes, recognition, respect, justice, and so on. Um, but I'm, I would like to argue or to, to try to promote the, the politics of indifference. 
indifference, um, knowing that we should all have access to rights, recognition, respect. We should all have act, be part of the fight against socioeconomic inequalities, mechanism of exclusion. But we can't pick and choose. What also bother me is some people who say the fight against racism is on the top of the agenda. Yes, I spent all my career studying racism and different forms of prejudice. So I agree with that. But then people said, well, racism is the first issue we need to, uh, to address. But then they said, but I want to focus on anti-Black racism or anti-white racism or anti-Asian racism. I'm sorry, we need to have a universal conception of the fight against racism. Because this is part of, of the problem. You have Hispanic who said, well, Black Lives Matter focus on police brutality against um, young Black men. But what about us? We are also victims of police brutality. Once again, I'm not ranking misery, but from the perspective of these people, they feel it's unfair. Um, that's why I, I wrote uh, a chapter about the invisibility of Hispanic and Asian. They say, who is going to march for us? Who is going to protect us? Um, some white liberal, thank you. Okay, that's very nice. But what about other groups? When we want to fight for, for women rights, do we really have to focus on the differences between different women or do we have to try to find a consensus to agree to disagree? That's the definition of agonism. It would be nice to be able to agree to disagree in the United States, but this suppose a dialogue, this suppose a debate. I'm not sure it's going to start in Congress, but it can start um, in different segments of American society. You point out that another source of contention relates to the fact that identity politics today is becoming increasingly disconnected from class-based injustice. There are strong arguments for focusing on the effects of racially motivated socioeconomic discrimination with its disproportionate impact on African Americans and Hispanics. Since the 1990s, the disappearance of secure blue-collar jobs for minimally educated workers has had a deleterious effect on the job prospects for black workers in urban centers. You then quote philosopher Lawrence Bloom noting, if we view this development only in relation to its racial impact, we overlook its effect on all low-skilled, poorly educated workers of any race. So is it a matter of focusing on, is it this binary, and I know it's binaries are never correct, but is it a matter of focusing on race or class? Because many have argued the focus on class erases the discussion of race and the discussion of race erases a conversation on class. Can both exist side by side? And if so, how? Well, they should. They should, because as I mentioned, you can't achieve racial justice without social justice uh, and vice versa. But this also implies that all the groups involved um, accept 
the legitimacy of the claims of other groups. Poor white, poor um, African-American, poor minorities, they have actually nothing in common. They have a lot. They should feel you know, part of the same group. But because of the emphasis on identity politics and so on, the, 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 this you know, division, they, they can't work together. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was a white movement. There was no minority. And there were many studies, you know, uh, trying to understand why minorities did not support Occupy Wall Street. And they say, but, but this is only a white movement. They're, um, they're expressing their white grievances, their white uh, expectations and so on. We have nothing to do with that. This is... This is not new. I mean, uh, Rodinger and say uh, wrote common misery does not produce solidarity, but it should. And I think the, the only way to, um, to help American society to move beyond polarization, division, fragmentation is again, to focus on what different groups have in common and not to prioritize our differences, assuming that contentious identity politics provide positive outcomes. No, not for one group, two, and certainly not for American society. You also write that one potential objection is that a more nuanced approach leads to a colorblind one. Colorblindness has been used by conservatives to dismiss the continuation of racially inspired social inequality and oppression. In its worst form, colorblindness justifies racial injustice as the product of a group's attributes based on cultural differences or is used to explain an individual's failure to achieve the American dream. A soft liberal version assumes that racism is an artifact of the past because of the dismantlement of the Jim Crow regime and the effect of affirmative action programs. Proponents of post-racialism therefore equate colorblindness with a utopian egalitarian social order in which racial identities no longer substantially influence basic life chances. Is colorblindness then the ideal, or is it an obstacle to the ideal of ending institutional racism? It's not an ideal, and it's not... And once again, I'm not a supporter of this notion. When I mention colorblindness in, in the uh, conclusion of the book, is um, more, I want to be very precise because this is a very important and contentious point. Um, when I mention the politics of indifference, that we should also be allowed as individual to um, reaffirm an individual identity instead of being trapped by our ethno-racial identification. Some people replied to me and said, oh, yeah, so you're colorblind. I'm everything but colorblind. Um, colorblind means, oh, you're dismissing racism meaning you're racist. I don't think I'm racist because I want to study racism seriously. Um, so I, I'm not in favor of this notion of colorblindness. What I suggest, and some people 
um, misunderstood that point and say, oh, that's colorblindness. No, what I suggest is to actually focus on what is really important if we want to fight racism in America is not to like some conservative to say, but you see, we had a black president, so we're not a racist society to dismiss the, the, the impact of racism in, in the United States. Or so all the people who said, uh, we, need, we need not to pay attention to um, ethno-racial identification. I want to suggest something slightly different. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a radical liberal. I try to be reasonable and say, we need to be aware of the importance of racism in the United States. But we also need to be aware that we made significant progress since the Jim Crow regime. And instead of focusing on saying we can't fight racism because racism is so ingrained in America that it's useless, this is defeating. I'm, I, and I don't, I want to fight racism for the rest of my life. We need to really understand how to improve American society the way people during the 60s and the 70s and so on also try to improve American society. Why do we focus only on the limitations, on what is not working? And this is not a way to dismiss racism. No, I want people to study seriously the progress we made and how to improve this progress. Because often that progress, when it is made, there is then, as you were pointing out earlier, a white backlash, which when civil rights gains are made, then suddenly some of those civil rights gains are, you know, fall off. It's three steps forward and two steps back often. So it's good to look at what we what has been achieved, but make certain that that achievement is sustainable. We have been speaking with Ariane Chabelle d'Apollonia, author of Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society. Ariane our final question that we do with each and every one of our guests, I promise. We call it the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience just might hate your response. You point out that today's problematic situation results from the combined effects of the racialization and polarization of group relations. They've led to escalating cycles of grievances that increasingly lack definable parameters. Right-wing populists use it to rebrand their ethno-racial prejudice and legitimize exclusionary practices by framing the question of identity politics into uh, identity, I should say, in terms of us versus them. Liberals, however, are not immune from perverting the meaning of identity politics, notably by promoting their conception of interest politics to the detriment of a more inclusive politics of solidarity. In its most dogmatic iterations, identity politics can demonize opponents, dividing us into smaller and smaller slivers of society or trapping individuals into a, an ascribed identity. Neither is a recipe for solidarity. Again, you call this a perversion of identity politics. How did identity politics become perverted, in your opinion? What happened to whatever good could have come of, and still does, of identity politics? 
I think it was the conjunction of different trends. The, the success of identity politics after the civil rights movement, I say this inspired all the groups to use the same strategy um, with maybe not so legitimate reason to do so. So it was the first, first way to abuse the identity politics. Um, then, then there was the political context. And um, identity politics was not part of politics. Um, but during the 90s, and this increased, of course, during the Obama administration, politics was poisoned by identity politics. And identity politics was poisoned by political polarization. And then on the top of that, it was, I think, also a way to dismiss um, a serious discussion about the intersection of race and class in America. I'm, I'm always puzzled by the little attention, even people working on America today, on um, the anger, the role of anger, grievances, and so on, they tend to dismiss the role of socioeconomic factors. So maybe this is coming from my European background, where we tend to pay more attention to socioeconomic inequalities and the role of status, group position, and so on. So it's not identity politics in itself. It's the use by some groups and the politicization, polarization of, um, of this trend. Ariane, thank you so much for being on our show this week. This has been a fascinating conversation. Your book really was blowing my mind. So we have been speaking with Ariane Chabelle d'Apollonia, author of Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society. Definitely check out Ariane's book. Thank you so much for being on our show. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I did a good job with pronouncing your name too, right? Yes, wonderful. That's the <laughs> first challenge. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ariane. Take care. You're welcome, Chuck. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. If what you just heard from Ariane on identity politics and their connection to violence, if that made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support for our show by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. this week and is and usually and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or just go to our website. This is hell.com and click on support and show you your support that way. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is... Did we get through all the Patreon responses yesterday or not? I don't believe we did. I don't think so either. This week's question from Hell is, what was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? <laughs> mm. We're... There, we've got some stories. All right. I think that we're going to find some politics of unity through all of our worst work experiences. <laughs> yes, there you go. Common now. cause, see? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I believe we haven't heard from Peter J on Patreon, Correct. our last response. The dive bar that I worked at changed ownership and the clientele changed. 
Every day my anxiety worsened before work. Fortunately, I had a lucky break during some time off when I went over my handlebars while trail riding and broke my neck. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I haven't worked an honest day since. It's been wonderful. The poverty, the pain, and the drugs have more than made up for it. <laughs> wow. I tried to read that in a really, like, happy tone yeah. to set the mood. Yeah. Yikes. Well, <sighs> congrats on not working. Yeah, enjoy your broken day. neck. Holy Yet, cow. Talk about a life hack there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, to Facebook. I mean, I feel like I have a pretty good story for this response all right, let's this week. All right, wait till you're done with the, <laughs> with the uh, answers you want to read, then tell us let's yours find, at the end. Let's find it here on Facebook. Uh, most recent responses on Facebook. And then you have to click all, and it's so annoying. <laughs> I hate okay, Facebook. So, R- Riley C. Riley C.D. says, I switched work with my spouse and ended up working on an assembly line in a candy factory. <laughs> I was doing great until my boss sped up the production. The only way to keep up was to stuff the candy in my mouth and into my blouse. <laughs> Sounds like, I don't know if that's a true story. Yeah, I don't know either. It sounds like a Lucy <laughs> show <laughs> ripoff. Go ahead. John T. says, background. I had a job that required me to be in on Sunday afternoons to download and process data that would be printed by the Sunday night person and mailed by Monday. Needed keys for the outer and inner doors to my workplace received keys to the outer doors and assurances from the office manager that the inner doors would not be locked problem the inner doors were frequently locked i would need to wait for the night person who had both sets of keys production was a shift behind solution i began to bring tools to remove the inner door from its hinges. After I left the inner door by the office manager's office a couple times, her son, the business owner, ordered her to give me a complete set of keys. <laughs> I Emphasis it. on the problem solving. That there. is a problem solver right there. <laughs> and um, so we have three more here on Facebook. All right, let's do those and let me hear yours. Uh, Watchik R says... Um, Overcome? <laughs> That's his entire response. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. Uh, from our very own Sebastian Whooper, uh, he says, true story. So I used to work on this talk radio podcast show out of Chicago. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> the way dot, this dot, is dot. going. <laughs> exactly. Too many stories to choose one, apparently. <laughs> Because that's all it says. So, <laughs> wow. So from SLS, uh, that's our, our last response. Uh, what was a difficult work experience and how did you overcome it? SLS says, your dad. <laughs> nice. Nice. So what's like your story? That. What Gender was your horrible there. What was your horrible work experience and how'd you get over it? Well, I don't know if any listeners remember. I'm not going to talk about my Boston market days. That's <laughs> okay. pretty funny. But like the one thing that comes to mind is it's a very Arizona story. <laughs> and it wasn't the worst place I ever worked. It was a pretty good place to work. I was working in a, a theater uh like at ASU, but Broadway musicals toured there. It was a really big theater, 3,000-seat auditorium. This is the one that Frank Lloyd Wright designed. Yes, it's called Grady Gamage Auditorium. Frank Lloyd Wright designed it, yeah. Um, 
But anyway, so I was working the hat check, which is Phoenix. We don't have coat check, but also nobody has his hats. So what I did at the hat check was I passed out like listening devices for people who are hard of hearing and then also just whatever else anybody needed. And after the show, I forget which musical it was, but maybe someday I'll remember. But this guy comes up to me and he's like, hey, is, did you have Lost and Found here? And I'm like, yeah, it would be here. What'd you lose? And he's like, um, did anybody find anything interesting? And I was like, a little more detail is needed. <laughs> and he's like, I lost a small firearm somewhere in the building. <laughs> and I was like, oh, geez. <laughs> wow. The guy brought a gun to a musical? I mean, yeah, I would. Yeah, that makes okay, sense. Okay, okay, hold on. I forgot the part where he was like, I have a concealed carry permit. Don't worry, I have a concealed carry oh, permit, but like this gun's lost in the building somewhere. Yeah, so you shouldn't have had a concealed carry permit to begin with if you're losing your guns mm -hmm, in public. Mm -hmm. So it becomes my job now to communicate this to my boss. And like we were all on like walkie talkie radios or whatever. So I tried not to like say it all over to all my coworkers, but <laughs> you didn't uh, want to cause a panic yeah I, I let the guy leave it was pretty funny i let the guy leave and the cops came and they're like yeah maybe you should have told him to stay i was like well i got his name and they found his gun underneath his seat surrounded by alcohol glasses wow <laughs> yeah. well, that's a, what so you overcame <laughs> I yeah I guess I, the, how I overcame it I just uh, you know uh, so <laughs> very Arizona that thing is that is happen. a very very Arizona <laughs> thing uh, so you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page you can tweet it at us you can email it to us but we must have your response by the end of this week's show following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth Lindsay again what's Jeff doing during this week's uh, moment of truth Jeff is uh, stubbing his toe. Stubs his toe on a cultural stumbling block. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. And tomorrow we'll share with you the rest of the responses to uh, uh, from our Patreon patrons who have suggestions for guests or have seconded earlier recommendations and, and suggestions. So we'll have more of that tomorrow. I said earlier that we were going to be doing it later on today's show, but later in the next hour we'll be doing it. It's time for nasty, gnarly, naughty, nauseous, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History on March 7th, 1965, 58 years ago this week, in the wake of the murder of murder by police of Baptist deacon and civil rights activist Jimmy Lee Jackson, a group of about 700 protesters began a march from Selma, Alabama to the state capital of Montgomery to demand the right of African Americans to register and vote in elections without the repression and disenfranchisement they had endured for decades in a state where white supremacists led by Governor George Wallace dominated positions of power. Who would have thunk Alabama, of all places, would still be in the grasp the grip of white supremacy a hundred years after the Civil War ended. Give or take a month. Oh, yeah, everybody. Among the leaders of the Voting Rights March were Reverend Hosea Williams of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and future Congressman John Lewis of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But before the march could even make it out of Selma, it arrived at a steel arch bridge over the Alabama River, a bridge named after Edmund Pettus, a 19th century Confederate general, U.S. senator, and so-called Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan 
Who would have thunk that Alabama would name a bridge after a grand dragon of the Klan? Again, the answer is everybody. As the marchers crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were confronted by an all-white wall of county deputies, mounted state troopers, and Klansmen. That's right. Murderous Klansmen were working hand-in-hand with the police, which everybody also would have thunk would be the case in the 1960s Alabama, or 1860s Alabama for that matter, and possibly in 2020s Alabama. Within moments, the scene turned violent as the white thugs attacked the unarmed marchers with tear gas and billy clubs. A few marchers were beaten unconscious, and many more were seriously injured, including John Lewis, who suffered a major skull fracture. The grisly event received considerable media coverage and spurred an immediate response by the nonviolent civil rights movement, including another march from Selma two days later, as well as more violence perpetrated by law enforcement and their allies in the KKK. President Lyndon Johnson chose the moment to urge Congress to pass a historic voting rights bill, which he was able to sign into law five months later. Today, the bridge over the Alabama River, now a national historic landmark, still carries the name of the same Confederate general and Klansman. Recent years have seen a campaign to rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge after Congressman Lewis. But before his death in 2020, Lewis himself expressed opposition to changing the name, which he called, quote, synonymous with the voting rights movement. And if you are white, and this makes you feel uncomfortable, and it teaches you that there were and still are lots of white racists in Alabama, maybe within the police and definitely within the KKK. And if you're a KKK member of the police, yeah, that's they got it a lot. Which leads your kid to thinking that white people can be bad. I know. Incomprehensible, isn't it? And that white people in Alabama in the 1960s deserve our disdain. Please call your local school, school board so they will never teach the history of that commie civil rights movement in your kid's school. Otherwise, who knows? Your kid may learn that racism is freaking horrible as our racists that spread hate. Now that's rotten history and this is hell. We still have yet to confirm tomorrow's guest, but we will, of course, have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.